1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Zippy Owens, and you're
0: listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight... Ruth Ozeki is the author of The Book of Form and Emptiness. She's a novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. She's the award-winning author of three novels, including My Year of Meats*, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being, which was a finalist for the 2013 Booker Prize. Her nonfiction work includes a memoir, The Face, a Time Code*, and the documentary film Having the Bones. She is affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation and teaches creative writing at Smith College, where she is a grace Jarko Ross, 1933 Professor of Humanities. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the book of form and emptiness. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. What a powerful, amazing read this was. Oh my gosh. Like, so... Cool on so many different levels, like so meta. So it just so was awesome.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Will you tell
0: listeners what your book is about, and then I'll dive into
3: my. Sure, sure. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's it tells the story of a young boy named Benny O. And when Benny is twelve years old, his father dies in a you know tragic and really kind of avoidable and stupid accident, automobile accident. He's actually run over by a truck. And Benny witnesses this, he witnesses his father's death and is, you know, really quite traumatized by it. And during the funeral, he hears his father's voice calling his name. All right. And then subsequently for about the year afterwards, he occasionally hears his dad's voice. But the story really picks up after that when he starts to hear not just his father's voice, but he starts to hear the voices of things in his house, objects speaking, not necessarily to him, but, you know, expressing themselves. And these are sort of random objects. I mean, like a sneaker or a pencil or a Christmas ornament or, you know, a piece of wilted lettuce in the refrigerator. And, and Sometimes he doesn't understand what they're saying, but he understands a kind of feeling tone that the object's, you know seem to have and so needless to say this is troublesome to him and particularly when the voices follow him out of the house and you know all the way to school and he ends up getting in, in trouble at school because of this he gets sent to a school nurse who then refers him to a child psychologist and and so he you know he's diagnosed with you know w- w- with a mental illness and is medicated so it this starts a whole you know a, a whole story about the way that that children's mental illnesses are treated. Benny, in any case, you know, decides on his own that school is no longer an option. And so he runs away to the local public library and meets a whole cast of characters there who in various ways help him. One of them is a Slovenian a homeless Slovenian poet-philosopher named The Bottle Man. And another is a young, beautiful performance artist who he falls in love with, of course. Another character is the character of the book itself, his book, right? And his book is, is uh, starts to talk to him and starts to tell his life story. So the narrator of The Book of Form and Emptiness is the book of form and emptiness, and I think that's probably what you meant when you talked about a kind yes. of meta. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> that's exactly what I meant. So these these characters kind of help Benny find his own voice ultimately, and you know, learn to live with all of the voices that he hears. Well, I wanted to read two passages from when the
0: importance of books and why the book is actually talking and all of that, which I found so fascinating and, like just so neat to be the reader then, right? Because now all of a sudden
3: the reader is a character in the book as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that was the fun part of, of writing this because of course a book is also a talking thing. A book is a talking object, right? And so if you're reading a book, you are listening to an object speak to you. So yes, exactly. The reader becomes a character and, and sort of is brought into the world of the book. Yeah, which was so neat
0: and so original, which I just love. Let's see, which one? Let me read this part. Well, that was also, well, this is just, the first words of a book are of utmost importance. The moment of encounter when a reader turns to that first page and reads those opening words, it's like locking eyes or touching someone's hand for the first time and we feel it too. Books don't have eyes or hands, it's true, but when a book and a reader are meant for each other, both of them know it, and this is what happened when Annabelle opened Tidy Magic. When she read the first sentence, a shiver ran down both their spines. <laughs> that is awesome. I love that so it's much. It's nice that books oh have
3: spines, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Right? That was just so... So good. And then I thought there was something else. Oh, has it ever occurred to you that books have feelings too? As you listen to this romantic tale of two ill-fated lovers, do you ever stop to wonder about what it feels like for us? Because in truth, if skin marks the border where an I ends and a you begins, then in these moments of impassioned boundary crossing called love, we envy you. It's that simple. We envy you your bodies. How can we not? Books have bodies too, but ours lack the organs needed to experience the world. The skin that covers our boards and encloses our words is different from yours. Our skin, whether made from paper or parchment or cloth, or these days some combination of plastic, glass, and metal, fulfills a similar function of marking our perimeters. But even the most haptic and capacitive of our skins cannot experience pleasure the way yours can. We cannot feel the ecstasy, the merging of self and other. <laughs> this is like, the. I mean, it's just the coolest. Aww. Like, so how what made you think about it in this way? And I spend a lot of time thinking about books. So I think this is why this is like so interesting to me. Like, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you, have you read elephant and piggy, these children's books? I haven't. No. Okay. This is so such a random thing, but there's one called we are in a book, right? And the characters are like, we're in a book. Like, wait, the book ends and you know, And they're like, we're on page 87. Oh no, now we're on page like 92. It's going too fast. So it's like
3: you're you're aware of that. I love that. I love that. Yes, exactly. No, and I think we all anybody who reads books and loves books knows that feeling of being in a book, being in a book so thoroughly and completely that, you know, and, and you, you, you know, I mean, with a physical book, you know, you're turning the pages and you know, you're getting closer to the end. And there's that feeling of panic, you know, do I read faster or do I slow down? You know, so that kind of boundary crossing is something I think that all readers understand, you know, that, that what happens when you fall into you know, you just fall into the, you know, in my case, the fictional world, you know, of, of a book. Do you remember a, a children's book called Harold and the Purple Crayon? Oh, my gosh. I read that right? all the time. Yeah. Not as much anymore, but that was my little, my fourth kid's like one of his
0: favorite yeah. books. But yes. And that's
3: what it reminded me to when I was writing this book. The idea that Harold is literally drawing his world. As he's living, you know, as he walks into it, as he steps into it. And that's what's happening with this book too. The book is telling the story as we are, you know, and readers are experiencing it, right? So it's this idea of, of you know, the, the book telling Benny's story and telling itself into being, but also telling Benny into being as well. So, you know, you have to ask the question then, which comes first, the book or the boy? Right, who's telling right. who? Right, and and so that's you know I, I, just playing little games like that amuses me when I'm writing, and so I think you know, yeah. but I think that my you know my inspiration comes from you know I think exactly books that I read in childhood because children's books are filled with animated things, right? I mean, objects are always speaking in children's books. You know, they're always behaving and doing things, right? And so the, you know, the, the sort of world of animated objects was something that, you know, it's part of the magic of, of childhood. And I wanted to try to capture that in a, a kind of an adult format in this book. Well, it's true. I mean, who's to say that that's so crazy, right? I mean, all of a sudden
0: it becomes... Crazy, Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. one of the conclusions, and maybe I misread, but I I felt like one of the conclusions was like, well, this is just a part of Benny's life. Like, this doesn't necessarily have to be so terrible. Like, he can learn to live with it, and it's okay, and it's interesting, and it's just one part Mm of him,
3: and... It doesn't mean he has to be like at a societal. Exactly, obsessed. exactly. And if there's one thing that I was really hoping in this, and, and you read it exactly the way I hoped, you know, this idea of really expanding what we consider normal to be, right? And I think that we, you know, normal—the idea of normal—is a social construct. Right. And it's completely dependent on, you know, on the culture that we happen to live in. Right. So if we live in a culture where, you know, voice hearing is considered to be, you know, a symptom of, you know, a a psychosis, then, you know, that's the way we're going to think of it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. And in fact, you know, there are far more people who hear voices than, you know, than is popularly reported and, and hear voices without any, Problem at all, you know. In fact, you know Joan of Arc. You know her voices were, you know, were divine, and and you know were the her you know her guides in life. You know, and you know even the fathers of you know the so-called fathers of psychology, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, also repeat you know reported hearing voices, right? So you know the idea that hearing voices signals some kind of you know some kind of abnormality, I think is a you know is a problem, and and so you know. In Benny's case, you know, certainly, you know, he just needed to learn how to negotiate and navigate, you know, the voices that he hears. And I think, too, you know, as an artist, as a writer you know, I, I hear voices all the time, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's where books come from. That's where, you know, that's where characters come from. And in fact, the, you know, the idea for the book kind of came to me after a reading. I was at a public library in Michigan, I think it was, and I was talking to the audience about how characters come to me as voices, right? I he- It's like I hear, not, not, outside my body, but I kind of hear in my mind, the voice of a character speaking to me. And then I, you know, sort of write it down and I listen, you know, and I follow that voice where it leads me. Right. And afterwards, you know, during the Q and A, a man raised his hand and asked me, you know, when you talk about hearing voices, are you talking about, you know, hearing the voices outside you or, you know, is this more a kind of an internal process? And I explained, and he told me that at that point that his son heard voices as though they were outside his head, right? And his son found this to be very distressing, which I think, you know, sometimes happens as well. And so anyway, that really got me thinking about the sort of spectrum, I think, that exists between creativity and what we, you know, what we call creativity and what we call madness, right? And so there's this, I think it's, you know, it's a spectrum and, you know, it's it's
2: interesting, I think, to, you know, to look at it that way.
1: All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, there's such a Obviously, the two dovetail mm-hmm. in so many instances. Yes, exactly. right? It's hard to, exactly. I mean, in, in all arts, not just literature, right? Like artists and
3: the pervasive sort of myth of right, the stereotype of the crazy ad. That's right. Anyway, that's right. No, no, absolutely. I think that's, and I think that's really important too to, to recognize. I mean, one of the things I'm grateful for is that I live in a culture that prizes fiction you know that that actually looks at fiction as something that is valuable rather than a pathology right and i could imagine living in a culture where making things up that aren't real could be looked at as a you know as a pathological condition that needs to be you know, cured or locked up or, you know. But thank goodness we live in a society where making things up is looked at as a positive thing. And, you know, I mean, I actually get paid to do it too. So isn't that isn't that wonderful? (laughs)
0: Lucky me. I mean, yes. (laughs) But you're right. It's very the circumstances where it's okay are very Clearly delineated, yeah. Yeah. and I, you know, I don't really write fiction. I, I really, I like to write nonfiction and essays and you know, first person stuff. But I did like experiment with writing fiction a few times, and I did find, and I sound, I felt like I was sounding crazy about it. <laughs> it's like I had this long flight where I was writing, and my husband, we like didn't even talk because I was like, I can't. I'm like so in this, you know. And then I was explaining it to him when I got off the flight, and I and telling him what happened. He's like, well, what's going to happen next? And I was like, I don't even know. I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I don't even know. Like, I'm so excited to see it. He's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I don't know. It sort of has taken on
3: a life of its own. Exactly. 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 You know, I hate to break it to you, but uh, it sounds to me like you're a fiction writer. So (laughs) (laughs) you might want to explore that or or not, but (laughs) but you really are sounding an awful lot like a fiction writer right now. No, that's exactly the experience is that, you know, I, I don't know where, you know, the stories are going to go. I'm just writing into you know, kind of into the void and and just following the, you know, following the story, you know, where it goes and and hoping that it'll take me someplace. So it's it's kind of like an act of faith too, you know. Mm -hmm. A long time ago, I interviewed somebody and I took this almost offensively because
0: I asked sort of, about where her ideas came from. And she said something like, Well, that's just such a bad question because, you know, where do like dreams come from? They just come. And I was like, All right, well, sorry. I don't know. i had done like two podcasts or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I
3: don't know. I was just wondering, you know, was there anything? I think it's in- a great question. It's a question I ask myself <laughs> all the time. I'm always asking myself, Where, are, you know, where are these ideas coming from? It's true. I, you know, and I think they do come from, I think they are like dreams. I think they come from the unconscious. And so, Really the the you know the way to access them is to you know to sort of you know tap into the unconscious, do you know sort of what, relax the controlling editorial mind and let the yeah. unconscious, the kind of playful part of the mind have control, have free reign, right? And I think in a way, you know, we started by talking about you know children's you know, children's books and animation. I, I think it's the part of our mind that we lose as we get older that playful part that makes stuff up you know that's not afraid of the unknown that you know i mean everything's unknown when you're a child right so you just kind of stumble forward into it and keep your eyes open and you know hope that it's just what what you see is wonderful
0: and so was part of this some sort of referendum on medication for kids
3: Well, it's something that, you know, that I think a lot about. You know, I was, when I was a child, you know, when I was 14, I, I was struggling with mental health issues myself. And I was, you know, I was diagnosed and medicated and that really sort of shaped my life for, you know, for a while. And I, you know, this was many, many years ago. And, and, you know, psychopharmaceuticals were sort of blunt instruments back then, you know. And I, and I think that, you know, I don't have an opinion about medication. I think it can be, you know, it can be absolutely, you know, very, very helpful, you know, to, to many people. So I, it's not like I'm anti-pharmaceutical at all. But I think that, you know, to think that that's the only way, right, of treating what sort of different Psychic states, right? Psychic states that we look at as being outside of the norm. Right, is it shows a certain kind of lack of imagination, and there's so many wonderful programs now that are really, you know, treating you know psychological challenges in different ways. There's a book that I, I've been reading now for a while, called The Body Keeps the Score. You're like the fifth person who's told it's, me about this book in the last week. I have to it's go It's amazing. It. It's amazing. I read it. Uh, you know, I started reading it in 2007 when it came out, and I wasn't really. Able to kind of get into it, but you know, I think that the you know, to be honest, I think the pandemic and and just everything that's happening in the world has created a kind of social trauma that has made this book very very relevant. And in fact, it's right up there on the New York Times bestseller list again. You know, like I saw yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> like many years after its publication, right? And and you know, Bessel van der Kolk, the the writer, talks about some wonderful you know all. It, therapies that, you know, would be considered, you know, alternative in, in the sense that they are not psychopharmaceutical, but he has very strong opinions about psychiatric diagnoses and they are, you know, they're, he's very, very critical of that. So I think I'm kind of influenced by him right at this point too, but it's, it's very, it's a wonderful book. It's a really wonderful book. Yeah. All right. It's on my list (laughs) when I have time. What is the book you're working on now? Oh, you know, I just have started it. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit loath to talk about it, but it's another, let me just say that it's, a, it's a, another kind of intergenerational book about a grandmother and her granddaughter and, you know, who are sort of thrown together during the lockdown, right? And I think that it might be called something like Conversations We Will Never Have, but I'm not sure. Mm. <laughs> it's still early. Okay. You
0: reserve the right to change. That's right. That's it's right. Okay. I always I change my mind. I won't mind. hold
3: you to it. <laughs> I, always, I always change my mind a million times. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Wow. Well, I would make the distinction between an author and a writer, first of all. You can't be an author until you're a writer, right? So my at first advice is to aspire to write. Right. And, you know, I I really, I really do think that the author is, is very different than the writer. The author's job is, is to go out and represent the book, but the, you know, the writer's job is to literally pull the book out of nothingness and put it onto the page. Right. And that's a, as you, as you have described so beautifully, it's, it's a compelling and exciting, but also a little bit frightening thing. So, you know, if that, if that frightens you, then, you know, I think the trick then is to figure out ways to get over that fear, you know, to work with that fear and to turn that fear into kind of into energy of some kind. And people have so many different strategies for doing that. Some friends of mine always write in groups, you know, just because, you know, it's sort of like bicycle racing, you know, you can kind of draft along with, you know, yeah. <laughs> along with the other writers, you know, and it holds you accountable. And I think that's one of the hardest things for aspiring writers is being held accountable and feeling like, you know, that, that, somebody's waiting and somebody, you know, somebody's waiting for your words and, you know, they really want to read them. So I would also suggest, you know, a writer's group of some kind, you know, some, it can be, it can be anything, but just somebody who, you know, you trade pages with and talk about the process that I think is really helpful. And then the other thing I do is, you know, because sometimes it's hard to find that person. I keep a process journal and my process journal is like my imaginary friend, you know? And the process journal is unfailingly patient with me, is interested in everything that I think, you know, everything that I, all my ideas, very interested in those. Always asks me questions about what it is that I'm, you know, that I'm writing. So when the, you know, when the journal asks me questions, and of course I answer, right? And and just the process of answering the questions right? Helps me sort of move along. I can complain to the process, to my process journal. I can, you know, I can brag, I can boast, I can, you know, and the journal is never, you know, critical of me, right? And so this is, you know, it's sort of a relationship that I've developed and I've done this, you know, I've been, I've been keeping a process journal since I think the mid-90s, right? So, you know, we have a long friendship at this point.
0: (laughs) Perhaps it's become so, this book, right? It's like I, you both- I know. That's right. That's right. Exactly. All right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Ruth, thank you so much. This was so fun, and you know, I really, really enjoyed this book and the innovation and creativity and wherever the voices led you. it for this reader, at least, was was very enjoyable and thought provoking. So
3: wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Zivi. and I. I look forward to reading your novel at some point too. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: All right, thank you. Have a great day. All right, you too. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibbie Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also, sign up for my newsletter at zibbieowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.